Inter Podcast. Listen to the official Inter Podcast and relive the tales of the great number 10s who wrote Nerazzurri history. Search for 10 Number 10s on the main podcast platforms, on the official app, and on inter.it. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The full number, if you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, I, I almost don't even know where to begin today. There, there's so much uh, with the Woodward story and everything else, but and, and we've got to start there, but how do you navigate your way through it? Uh, I, I want to begin, well, it, let me begin with the question of what could the president have done differently. And, and please bear with me here as I get through this, because I do think it is relevant. Uh, and, and I do think, in fact, that we should acknowledge there are things the president could have done differently. A lot of the president's core supporters say, well, no one could have done or would have done anything differently than the president. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, I think based on the audio from the Woodward tapes, it's worth acknowledging that, yeah, the president actually did know way sooner than most people that the virus actually was going to be a bigger problem uh, than what some people thought. It, it is worth noting, however, uh, that so much of the media and and the left didn't believe the president that should the president uh, have done the things they wanted him to do, that really they – they probably would not have have acknowledged it in in, in, in any respect. My tongue and my brain are are, are lagging today. Let, let me read you some headlines. These these are media headlines. These media headlines run from January into the middle of February. Uh, someone who's who's a fan of comfortably smug put them together. Uh, we should de-escalate the war on the coronavirus. Fear, finger-pointing, and militaristic action against the virus are unproductive. We may be better off adjusting to a new normal of periodic outbreaks. As the coronavirus spreads, fear is fueling racism and xenophobia. That's from CNN. From The Observer, coronavirus fears fuel, fears fuel racism and hostility, say British Chinese. From The Washington Post, Get a grip, America. The flu is a much bigger threat than coronavirus for now. From the Atlantic, you're likely to get the coronavirus. From KVAL-TV, health official, you're more likely to catch flu in Oregon than deadly Wuhan coronavirus. Uh, Racist, they called it Wuhan coronavirus. Remember that? Once the president banned travel from China, suddenly it became racist to call it the Wuhan coronavirus. From USA Today, coronavirus is scary, but the flu is deadly or more widespread. Uh, from News Channel 20, experts warn flu is greater risk than coronavirus. From KQED, the flu is still a bigger health threat in the U.S. than novel coronavirus. From uh, The Hill, why are we panicked about the coronavirus and calm about the flu? From uh, Snopes, coronavirus has spread quickly, but it's nowhere near as widespread as previous epidemics like the swine flu or the Spanish flu. From Time Magazine, uh, way, why, want to protect yourself from coronavirus? Do the same things you do every winter. Uh, from ABC 15 Arizona, flu hitting Arizona more than usual this season despite attention on coronavirus. From the Associated Press, is the new virus more deadly than the flu? Not exactly. Uh, from Health Magazine, is the coronavirus worse than the flu? Here's how the two diseases compare. It depends on what you mean by worse from something called HCP Live, uh, the, the fear of the coronavirus and the reality of the flu. From ABC7 in New York, uh, mid-coronavirus outbreak, doctors remind public 
flu is deadlier. From Fox 17 in West Michigan, doctors suggest worrying about the common flu, not the coronavirus. From Reuters, new coronavirus spreads more more like flu than SARS, according to the Chinese. From Axios, why we panic about coronavirus but not the flu. From the York Daily Record, coronavirus is deadly, but the flu's claimed over 8,000 lives this season. From the National Interest, forget about the coronavirus, the flu pandemic of 1918 killed more people in one year than all of World War I. From AZ Central, new coronavirus is likely to go pandemic, but that's not a reason to panic or overreact. From Patch.com, Maryland flu deaths climb as flu more worrisome than coronavirus. From KOAA News 5, Southern Colorado, panic over coronavirus could be caused by flu numbers. From Science Alert, the flu is a way bigger threat to most people than the U.S., from the National Post, new coronavirus may be more, no more dangerous than the flu, despite worldwide alarm, colon, experts. From CCN, relax, coronavirus is less dangerous than the flu, say epidemic experts. From the Daily Beast, the virus killing U.S. kids isn't the one dominating the headlines. All of these were written at the end of January or the beginning of February. That is what the American media was saying. The president of the United States is often attacked from getting his information from the American media. The American media was telling him those things. We, we do need to give proper context to this in the, in the hate on Trump stuff. But this is also a fact. The president spoke to Bob Woodward on February 7th, 2020 two days after the impeachment trial ended. And at that time, the president knew that this was actually worse than the flu, five times more deadly than the flu. The president had spoken to the Chinese premier. The president's national security team had told him in the middle of January, based on their intelligence, this would be the biggest national security threat of his administration. The president told Bob Woodward in his own words that he knew that the disease was transmitted through the air. There are things the president could have done differently. And I think we need to be honest about that, that there are things the president could have done differently. And hindsight does matter here to a degree. We can look back in hindsight and say, yes, the president should have done things differently. But what we also have now are the president's own words at that time, recorded by Bob Woodward. The president could have privately briefed governors with the information about the virus being airborne and being actually way more contagious than the flu, contrary to the press reports, because by February 7th, while all those headlines were in the newspapers that the flu was actually worse and more contagious, the president knew differently. The president could have been more assertive against his own side, saying that the flu was worse or this was no worse than the flu. The president could have avoided sending mixed messages about masks once he knew it was airborne. The president could have stopped being so dismissive of the virus and claiming it would just go away, a claim he still makes today. Doing that gave people a lot of false hope when the president, in his own words, recorded by Bob Woodward, knew it wouldn't go away. He could have asserted himself as a leader with better guidelines and guidance for states to control the shutdowns and the reopenings. He could have provided information to the states. 
You know, in early February, Sanjay Gupta on CNN, who I've been critical of for, for some of the, his statements made and his his uh, unwillingness to recognize the president has to balance the economy and public health. Uh, Sanjay Gupta was on CNN in early in early February, raising all sorts of red flags about the coronavirus and saying the president and, and his team needed to be more engaged, get more information to the public, uh, be more honest and more forthright about how contagious it actually was. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, formerly of the FDA, was also out there and by the end of February was saying that there was a troubling trend of the president's supporters denying there was a problem with the virus, denying uh, some of the, the scenarios that were out there, denying uh, that the virus was worse than the flu. But, you know, New York public health officials were doing the same thing. It wasn't just the president's team out there. It was New York public health officials and Nancy Pelosi as well. And and I don't think we should be dismissive of that fact either, that it wasn't just the president and his team. It was also hosts of Democrats who weren't getting their information from Donald Trump. In fact, they were getting their information from other organizations. Why? Because they didn't believe the president of the United States. The risk to New Yorkers for coronavirus is low. And our city preparedness is high. This should not stop you from going about your life, should not stop you from going to Chinatown and going out to eat. I'm going to do that today myself. Come to Chinatown. Here we are. We're, again, careful, safe, and come join us. There is no concern at this time for coronavirus in our region. The Department of Sanitation is ready for Mardi Gras 2020. The facts are reassuring. We want New Yorkers to go about their daily lives. There's really no need to panic and to avoid activities that we always do as New Yorkers. We are a hardy people. Americans do not need to panic. What I would suggest, however, Mm -hmm. is that Americans take this as a wake-up call for seasonal flu. There's very little threat here. This disease, even if you were to get it, basically acts like a common cold or flu. So we're telling New Yorkers, go about your lives, take the subway, go out, enjoy life. And certainly not to miss the parade next Sunday. I'm gonna be there. If you had to, would you close down the borders? No. We need to be honest about the American people, with the American people about the fact that we can't keep people coming here from China. And transmission is not that easy. I think there's been a misperception um, that coronavirus hangs in the air waiting to catch you. No, it takes direct person-to-person contact. We also know that if it were likely to be transmitted casually, we would be seeing a lot lot more more cases. cases. Right, right, because this is New York and you're in elevators and trains with everybody all the time. Those were New York public health officials. They weren't getting their information just from the president and his team. And if you think that, uh, you're delusional. And yet that was them at the same time the president was telling people it was no big deal. Remember, de Blasio was still debating whether or not to shut down New York uh, in anticipation of uh, St. Patrick's Day. In Louisiana, the Democratic officials decided they were going to have Mardi Gras. None of that is the president's fault. Y'all, the the real bottom line here is that we were dealing with a, a global pandemic where the Chinese and the World Health Organization were lying. You've got a global pandemic, the Chinese are lying, the World Health Organization is lying. The president is in the middle of an impeachment trial. The president does take action to shut down uh, travel with China. The Democrats accuse him of racism and claiming he's trying to distract from impeachment. 
I, I genuinely don't think the president could have made an impact with Democrats at the time if he had come out and raised the alarm on the coronavirus being bad. I, I, I actually do believe that Democrats would have said that this was all a distraction for impeachment. But the president still should have led. We know that by February 7th, he actually knew that it was more contagious than the flu, more deadly, and traveled through the air. That's his words to Bob Woodward. That's February 7th. The president absolutely could have done things differently. Would it have mattered? I, I don't know that it would have, but he certainly could have done things differently. But I also think that the situation is way more complicated than people want to believe because we're in tribal politics. The situation was complicated by lack of information and false information from China, the World Health Organization. You had America's own experts uh, arguing with each other. I mean, even at the end of February, you had Dr. Fauci on TV saying you don't need to wear masks. The Surgeon General saying the same thing. And by the way, I, I do think it's worth pointing out that the president said to Woodward the reason he was downplaying it is he didn't want to spark a panic. The president did not spark a panic because he downplayed it, but we were still out of bread. We were still out of meat. We were still out of toilet paper. We were still out of paper products. We were still out of milk. We were still out of eggs. We were still out of all sorts of stuff at grocery stores. Without the panic, the president didn't want to provoke. Could he have done stuff differently? Absolutely. Did he know more than he let on? Absolutely. Every president knows more than they let on. It's actually, I think, a little bit mendacious to say that uh, the president knew all the stuff. He should have told us everything. You don't want the president telling you everything. Uh, Barack Obama kept secrets from the public, too, and, and no one was upset about him doing that. Remember, Barack Obama is the one who said we could absorb a second 9-11. Told Bob Woodward that. Here's here's my point, and I want to spend some time with this, and I'm happy to take your phone calls on this as well. But here's my bottom line point here is – if you hate the president, you insist he screwed up completely. And if you love the president, there's no room for recognizing he could have done things differently. And in fact, did we now know have the information where he could have done some things differently? But a whole lot of pol political officials are in the same category, including Andrew Cuomo. And all the people who want to blame the president for everything, they don't want to blame Andrew Cuomo. All the people who think the president should have done differently, some of the things they want to do are masks and, and shutdowns, and even Joe Biden says that's unconstitutional. The president can't do it. There are absolutely things he could have done differently. He could have been more forthright. But we're also dealing with a global pandemic. We're nine months into it right now. We only have eight months worth of American knowledge about the virus. We know the initial knowledge and, and information from China was tainted, if not outright lies. The World Health Organization collaborated with China to help cover it up. I, I'm just not willing to crucify any politician for getting stuff wrong in the first few months of this pandemic. Absolutely, you can always have done more in hindsight. But we're also dealing with the virus. The president's not responsible for wrecking the economy. The virus is. And to the extent people don't want to acknowledge that, it's the level of brokenness and tribalism we have right now in the public, uh, the, the perceptions of, of the president. Uh, we, we know he knew more. And based on that and in his own words, there are things he could have and should have done differently. But a whole lot of people are in the camp as well. And I'm just, I, I'm not willing 
to throw the president under the bus or any other politician under the bus for what they did in February when so much of what we know now is actually contrary to the medical advice we were being given by the experts in February. And I think that matters in context as well as everything else. But context and nuance are something you're not supposed to do anymore. You know, I think it's really important to note here that the the two biggest claims uh, by Democrats of what the president should have done in February are he should have shut the nation down and he should have imposed a national mask mandate. Generally, when people are asked, what should the president have done differently in February uh, than what he did? And by the way, I'm, I am on record saying there are things he could have done. Um, it, what the president is said to have, should have done is shut down everything and impose a mask mandate nationwide. Those are the two big things. He should have shut down the nation earlier, and he should have imposed a mask mandate. Even Joe Biden says publicly those are unconstitutional. The president can't shut down commerce in the states. He doesn't have that constitutional authority. You don't have to believe me, believe Joe Biden. The president doesn't have the power to impose a mask mandate nationwide. Don't believe me, believe Joe Biden. And those are constantly the two refrains of what the president should have done differently. There are things he should have done differently um, behind the scenes, I think, uh, and, and in terms of his messaging and standing on stage and and, and giving some clear, concise instruction and, and direction as to the extent of the virus, what they were privately expecting and the like. Uh, and I think he could have done it without inciting panic. But this is something I also think that a lot of people who criticize the president uh, miss. The president did not want to spark panic. And the president himself knows that he's very good at painting in bold colors and, and not very good at shading in. And it would have been very hard for the president to nuance. I mean, with the president, things are either really, really good or really, really awful. There, there isn't a lot of between, and, and it's to his credit, he's self-aware enough to realize that. And, and so he didn't want to go out there and try to make the case not to panic, uh, knowing the, the word choices, he just can't help himself, and he knows it. And by the way, this isn't to excuse the president. And I know if you hate the president, that's what you're hearing. It's just the reality. And so many people don't want to acknowledge the reality. The reality is that, that there's so much about the virus we didn't know at the time. We now know from the president's own words, he did know more than was publicly being stated. We also know that the president's entire intent was to not spark a panic. And we also know that without that panic, there were still food shortages and paper shortages and all sorts of other problems. Uh, a, a devastated economy would have been more devastated. But the bottom line is that so many of the demands that the president should have done other things, those demands are things the president president couldn't have done. We are 50 semi-sovereign nations that ceded limited power to Washington, D.C. to do things in the national interest for the common good, typically uh, in dealing with other countries and uh, dealings between the states to keep a, a fair and level playing field. But the states themselves have copious amounts of power that the president doesn't have. The police power resides with the governors of the several states. The health care power is part of the police power that resides with the governors of the several states. It was on the governors to act. And it's worth pointing out that while Ron DeSantis was protecting nursing homes in Florida, Andrew Cuomo was sending senior citizens back to nursing homes to infect other people and die. Now, I realize everybody wants to blame the president. 
But if there's blame to go around, uh, you cannot exclude some of these Democratic governors. You know the states worst hit by the coronavirus per capita? New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Louisiana, Rhode Island, and the District of Columbia. All of which, the exception of the District of Columbia, are Democratic governors. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm basically spending the whole hour on this Woodward stuff, so nobody can say I didn't talk about it. If you were here in the first half hour, yes, I did say in the first half hour there are things the president could have done differently and better, and I outlined them. So now I want to talk about the other stuff that I actually think is more important. The president purportedly withheld bad news about the virus. And and by the way, presidents get bad news of things all the time, and you are under no privilege or right to know that information. That information is there to help the president of the United States make decisions. It's not for you. And the president wanted to avoid sparking a panic, and so he withheld the information from you, and that is his right. And if Barack Obama did it, all of you people who were upset with the president would have been perfectly fine with it. But the president did withhold that information. Purportedly, according to the Democrats in the media, by withholding the information, the president cost American lives. But an American reporter had that information. Not only did Bob Woodward have the information, he got it on tape. He got it in the president's own words, in the president's own voice, recorded. And what did Bob Woodward do with that information? Absolutely nothing. Bob Woodward held on to the information As the body count rose, the Associated Press asked Bob Woodward why, and he said, well, he needed to really confirm the stuff and see if it was really that bad. Coincidentally, Bob Woodward wasn't able to confirm it all until the week his book launched in September. We're almost at 200,000 deaths in the United States of America, and Bob Woodward withheld all of that knowledge and information as the conspiracy theories built, as the data was challenged, as everyone questioned everything, as the Trump supporters made all sorts of wild claims, and the president, in his own voice, talking to Bob Woodward, knew how bad the situation was, and Bob Woodward did nothing. Oh, but Mr. Erickson, it was for a book deal, and he promised it wasn't for a book. So he released it for a book. He didn't have to wait until the week the book came out. He could have released it months ago. He had 18 conversations with the president and then wrapped up those conversations. He could have released it after that. By then he knew, and he's got it all recorded by then, but no, Bob Woodward held on to it. And you know what we're seeing today? We're seeing members of the media defending Bob Woodward. Ladies and gentlemen, The American press corps actually polls as less light and less trustworthy than the president of the United States. There is bipartisan contempt for the American press corps. Democrats hate them. Progressives hate them. Moderates hate them. Conservatives hate them. Republicans hate the press. The press is less popular than a turd floating in a swimming pool.
And this is exactly why. One of their own, the patron saint of investigative journalism, Bob Woodward, held on to audio recordings of the President of the United States saying he knew how bad the virus was and was willfully downplaying it to avoid sparking a panic. And Bob Woodward held on to that information to make money, to cash in, to sell books. And the majority of the mainstream media from the Washington Post to the Associated Press, they're giving Bob Woodward a pass on this. I saw the pictures of the bodies piled into refrigerator trucks in New York City because there wasn't enough space in the morgues. I saw the pictures. Bob Woodward could have released the tapes. And you know, you bring this up, the partisan reaction is, well, this is just distracting from the president. No, no, no. No, I I intentionally, willfully started my program saying that the president could have done things differently, should have done things differently, could have been more forthright without sparking a panic. There were ways he could have done it. I said all of that. But no, there there are multiple angles to this story, and everyone on the left, all the Democrats and the media, just want to point their finger at Donald Trump and say, orange man, bad. Because they're completely broken on that point. But the bodies piled up, and Bob Woodward kept quiet. Bob Woodward told the Associated Press, in fact, let me read you this from the Associated Press. Bob Woodward, facing widespread criticism for only now revealing President Donald Trump's early concerns about the severity of the coronavirus, told the Associated Press on Wednesday that he needed time to be sure that Trump's private comments from February were accurate. He tells me this that I'm thinking, wow, that's interesting, but is it true? Trump says things that don't check out, right? Woodward told the AP during a phone interview. Using a famous phrase from the Watergate era when Woodward's reporting for the Post helped lead to Richard Nixon's resignation, Woodward said his mission was to determine what did he know and when did he know it. Coincidentally, he found out the answer the week his book came out. This is a uniquely Washington phenomenon. John Bolton kept quiet until he left. The president largely pushed him out and then wrote a tell-all book. And in the tell-all book, acknowledges or at least claims that the president turned a blind eye to concentration camps in China, where the Chinese were engaged in genocide because the president wanted a trade deal. Did John Bolton decide to resign at the time and expose what was going on? Oh, hell no. He stayed on. He wanted access to power until he couldn't get his way. And then he left and wrote his tell-all book and said, hey, the president's covering up genocide in China. Well, well, thanks, John. I'm sure the families of the dead people in China appreciate you not saying anything until you could cash in on their deaths. Nearly 200,000 Americans die, and Bob Woodward says nothing except, well, I had to verify whether it was, when did you know it was true, Bob? When did you know it was true? In, 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 In March, 
when there were tens of thousands of deaths in, in April, when there were 30,000 deaths in, in March, where there were 50,000 deaths in, in, in May, when there were 70,000 deaths in June, when there were 100,000 deaths in July, when there were 150,000 deaths in, in August, when there were 170,000 deaths? At, at, at what body did you realize it was true, Bob? You can cast all the invective you want on Donald Trump if you're a partisan and orange man bad in your mind. But if you're excusing Bob Woodward, you really are just a partisan hack. Because I'm willing to acknowledge the president could have done things differently. Can you acknowledge that Bob Woodward held on to the information, held on to the tapes, and held on to the audio just to make money off the dead people? Because that's what this amounts to. Is he selling salacious allegations about the president, some of it in the president's own voice? And he says, well, it was just he had to hang on to it. If you're not willing to hold Bob Woodward accountable, you're not really being honest. There's more here, too. We do, as I said earlier, have 50 semi-sovereign nations within these United States. You know, the, the, the phrase, the United States of America, only became common after the Civil War. Prior to that, it was referred to as these United States internally. Externally, abroad, nations would refer to us as the United States. But internally, the United States, typically, if you read a lot of the books prior to the Civil War, it was these United States. Uh, and it was states, uh, semi-sovereign nations who ceded limited power to Washington, D.C., the police power is a power of the states, of the governors. And you can't really blame Donald Trump for Andrew Cuomo's incompetence. And that, honestly, that's one of the most frustrating things here. I am willing to acknowledge there are things that could have been done differently in Washington. But a whole lot of the media and the Democrats, but I want to focus on the media for a minute, the same media that is covering for Bob Woodward, that same media also covers for Andrew Cuomo. And, and don't tell me he was misled by the president of the United States because in March, I believe it was March 15th, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, was issuing an order barring people from going into elder care facilities, long-term care facilities, nursing homes, and barring COVID-positive patients from returning to nursing homes. They had to go to separate, segregated, isolated facilities until they were fully recovered, and then they could go back once they had tested negative. On the exact same day that Ron DeSantis was doing that in Florida, Andrew Cuomo was ordering uh, COVID-positive elderly patients back into nursing homes where they spread the virus and got a bunch of people killed. Yet the media of the United States has never wanted to hold Andrew Cuomo responsible for that. They've completely given him a pass. Nightly on CNN, you can see uh, Chris Cuomo verbally commit incest with Andrew Cuomo, and everyone's perfectly fine with it, and hardly anyone questions why is an anchor on CNN giving his brother favorable hagiographic interviews and not asking him the tough questions about why it was he was sending senior citizens into nursing homes to die at the same time the governor of Florida was protecting those senior citizens, and yet the majority of the American media paints Ron DeSantis as a failure as governor who mishandled the coronavirus. Meanwhile, Florida, with more people than New York, has far fewer deaths. Do you know, per capita, 
Florida is not even in the top 10 for deaths. You want to know the top 10 states per capita for coronavirus deaths? New Jersey at 180 deaths per 100,000 people. New York at 170, Massachusetts at 132, Connecticut at 125, Louisiana at 110, Rhode Island at 100, the District of Columbia for 87, Mississippi at 87, Arizona at 72, and Michigan at 68. Gretchen Whitmer of Whitmer of Michigan has been lionized by the press. And yet she's at number 10. Andrew Cuomo lionized by the press. He's at number two. And if you really want to put a partisan spin on this, let's go through the partisan spin. New Jersey, Democrat. New York, Democrat. Massachusetts, Democrat. Connecticut, Democrat. Louisiana, Democrat. Rhode Island, Democrat. District of Columbia, Democrat. Mississippi, Republican. Arizona, Republican. Michigan, Democrat. Why is it Doug Ducey is treated as a bad guy in Arizona with 72 deaths per 100,000 people, but the governor of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards, who said, let's go ahead and have Mardi Gras with 110 deaths per 100,000 people, is given a pass by the media because it's partisanship. It's the same reason that Bob Woodward is given a pass. Because it's partisanship. I I wrote a piece this morning, as I tend to do in the mornings, about all of this. And I want to read you my bottom line from this piece. We're eight months into dealing with a global pandemic caused by a virus from China about which the Chinese and the World Health Organization sent mixed and misleading messages and for which there is no cure. The president had limited capacity to manage the virus at the state level and had a responsibility to manage the economy as well. The bottom line is that the virus and pandemic are way more complex than our partisan tribal tendencies want to allow, and we should be sparing and heaping blame anywhere given how the situation unfolded. Yes, the president could have done things better or differently, but yes, we know a lot of that now in hindsight. The same goes for Andrew Cuomo. The same goes for other nations. The same goes for the media. The same goes for Bob Woodward, who kept it so much quiet so he could cash in on the mountain of American corpses that piled up around him while he wrote his book. The only reason the media is fixated on the president here is because they hate him. Because he's a Republican. You can see the double standards and how the media treated Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis, and Doug Ducey versus John Bell Edwards, Democrat in Louisiana, Andrew Cuomo, Democrat in New York, the Democratic governor of New Jersey's, Massachusetts, Connecticut. I, I, I don't think we can distract from that, folks, and yet so many people want to. I just accidentally hung up on a really important person. They called... And I said, hello, and I needed to put my, so I, 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 I just, I just hung up on a, on a (laughs) real, oh gosh, um, no, I can't, I, no, uh, um, Yeah, that just happened. Okay, never mind. Uh, maybe he'll call back. Uh- <laughs> Gosh.
I, I, I'm, 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 I, 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 I'm, we need to move on. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I just did that. Okay, um, you know, the, the, the Woodward book, you know, Carl Bernstein, uh, worked with Bob Woodward at the Washington Post and during the um during the during the Watergate stuff and Bernstein is now famous every time a Republican becomes president Bernstein is is trotted out from his grave and it claims that whatever that Republican did is worse than Watergate it really actually is somewhat amusing uh 9/11 worse than Watergate uh Going into Iraq, the weapons of mass destruction stuff, worse than Watergate. Uh, George W. Bush failing to flush the toilet, worse than Watergate. Uh, it, it, <laughs> Trump becomes president. It's like every time the Russians get a worse than Watergate. This now, where's the, this is like the, the only thing it's like, they've got a, a, a speech box in the corpse's mouth that is programmed to say worse than Watergate. Um, that my friends, that's wow. Wood uh, Bernstein is, is, you know, it's kind of sad. You bring down the president of the United States once and your quest in life for the rest of your life is to keep trying to bring down presidents of the United States and everything must then be worse than Watergate. What is really funny about the Woodward book, though. Now, full disclosure, uh, I've only read the Washington Post coverage. Uh, I have not actually read the book. They didn't send me. I'm not going to go give Bob Woodward money to reward him for covering up the deaths of 200,000 Americans so that he can make money. Uh, the Washington Post is running excerpts. One of the most interesting things that is is totally being overshadowed, totally overshadowed, is... All of the people who work for the president who hate his guts. The, let's see. Um, uh, let's see. Um, you've got Mattis going after him. You got various generals going after him. Uh, and on and on and on it goes. The number of people who go on record with Bob Woodward who worked for the president, who savaged the president. You've got James Mattis in there. I mean, this, this is, this, let, let me just, let, let me, let me put this on. Uh, this is from the uh, Houston Chronicle. Trump says he knew coronavirus was deadly and worse than the flu while intentionally misleading Americans. New book reports. Buried all the way in there is that James Mattis believes that he was uh, completely uh, unfit for office. Buried in there is that all these other people who worked for the president believed he was unfit for office. Buried in there was uh, the revelation 
that uh, the intelligence director at the time, uh, Dan Coats, believed that Vladimir Putin really had something on the president of the United States. It's so the media so worked up. And, and by the way, this is the this is the most the most innocuous part of it. Frankly, is that the president in February had information about the virus. He didn't mislead the public. He chose to downplay the virus to avoid sparking a panic. Meanwhile, you've got on and on and on it goes, all of these people coming out who worked for the president in national security and intelligence, bad-mouthing the president, and all of that is buried. You, you would think that you could lead with that stuff. What Mattis said, what the intelligence director said, all of those things. But no, they choose to actually lead with, with the virus. And the reality is that the president says over and over, I listened to the uh, the audio. You can go listen to the audio yourself. He just wanted to avoid sparking a panic. That's why he did what he did. You can disagree with it. You can disagree with the way he did it, but understand the motive for why he did it. He didn't want to freak people out. If Obama had done that, you'd have given him a pass. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. So how's your day going? Uh, I just hung up on on super important person. (laughs) Okay. Before I move on, I'm I'm going to tell you a story, and y'all can all have a laugh at my expense. Weeks ago, I was sitting at my kitchen table and have my bottle of Heinz ketchup, the only decent ketchup in America, and tilted it over. And you know, you get those bottles sometimes of, of Heinz and, and air pressure builds up in it and it, it splashes out ketchup when you open it. Well, I had tilted the bottle over, realized I hadn't taken the lid off and I took the lid off and there it goes. Premature emission of ketchup all over the place including on my phone, where it got into the earpiece. And I really didn't think anything of it. I wiped it out. Well, clearly ketchup has dried in the earpiece of my phone. And I got to use my earbuds now. I've got Apple AirPod Pros, the greatest device Apple has ever invented. Uh, And so if someone calls, I typically I'll grab the phone and I'll say hello and let them start talking, and then I'll grab my AirPods I keep right next to them and and put the earpiece in so I can actually hear the conversation. Well, uh, somebody called during the last commercial break uh, who I probably should have talked to, and as I was putting the AirPod in, I accidentally hung up on them. And it was famous person. So anyway, I hope your day is going better than mine has started. Let's move on. Uh, If you're just tuning in, I have spent a whole lot of time in the first hour talking about the Woodward book. I'm not inclined to revisit the Woodward book except to make a couple of very brief points that I think need to be made. And they're worth repeating. And for those of you who are here the first hour, just bear with me. This won't take long. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. We are eight months into knowledge, nine months into dealing with the virus, eight months into American knowledge of the virus. A lot of the public health advice we got from people early on in February is different from the advice we now have. It was February 24th that Dr. Anthony Fauci and the Surgeon General of the United States were on television 
telling people don't worry about wearing masks. There's no point. They have now revised that position and believe that you should wear masks. We originally believed in the models and estimates that there could be millions of people killed and that the virus was 10 times worse than the flu. It is, it's worse than the flu. It's very much worse than the flu. But it's not as deadly or as contagious as we first thought. We originally thought that the virus could be spread on surfaces. We now know that there's not a single known case of transmission of the virus from a surface to a person. All of the cases of the virus that we are aware of have come through airborne transmission and inhaling of particulate, which is why they want you to wear a, you to wear a mask. We, we know now that way more people are asymptomatic than we first thought. We now know as of yesterday, the president knew this fact uh, in January that uh, there's a high rate of asymptomatic spread. But there's a lot of stuff the president didn't know as well. There's a lot of stuff that has changed. And if you hate the president, you read the Bob Woodward book and it affirms everything that you already thought about the president. If you like the president, the book affirms everything that you thought about and hated about the Washington elite. I don't know that this book is going to make up anyone's mind. The media is already overplaying its hand on the book. For example, uh, Bob Woodward asked the president if if he was in some sort of a privilege cave, completely unaware of uh, the experience of black Americans. And the president denied he was in a cave and, and said he didn't need to be black to understand the black experience. And the media is out savaging the president today for his tone deafness on race issues, mischaracterizing his statements to Bob Woodward. It is very hard to get an accurate and fair reading of anything about this administration from the American press. It is very hard when stories are first run to get accurate coverage, meaningful coverage, or a fair depiction of events. The book by Bob Woodward and the media coverage assails the President of the United States for misleading Americans. The American media misled Americans. The media referred to the virus as the Wuhan virus until the president banned travel with China and Joe Biden declared that it was racist and xenophobic to do so. And then the media declared use of the phrase Wuhan virus to be racist and xenophobic. The media said not the president, the media said the flu was worse. Now they're blasting the president for telling Bob Woodward he knew the coronavirus was worse than the flu. Well, the media was telling people it wasn't as bad as the flu. I also think you have to acknowledge, and Democrats don't want to, my, you know, I'm friends with Joe Scarborough. He's very mad at me for making this point. And I stand by this point, and I think it is reality. This is a point that is going to make everyone who hates the president mad at me. But I stand by this point. 
I believe this. I would not tell you anything I didn't believe was true, including this. If in late January, in the very beginning of February, the president took all of the aggressive action that the Democrats and the media demand he should have taken at the end of January and beginning of February, they would have accused the president of sparking fear to distract from the impeachment. The impeachment trial was not concluded until February 5th. By that time, the president spoke to Bob Woodward on February 7th. By that time, the president knew it was worse than the flu, knew about the asymptomatic spread in China, knew about the situation in China, blocked travel from China. And what did they do when the president blocked travel from China in January? They accused him of distracting from impeachment. They accused him of racism and xenophobia. Had the president done more, had been had he been more aggressive, they would have attacked him for distracting from impeachment. And you can take issue with me and be mad at me about that. And deep down, you know darn well that's true. Because everything at the end of January and beginning of February was seen through the lens of impeachment. Every single thing. When the president ordered the military to take out Qasem Soleimani, you had hysterics on MSNBC claiming the president was going to start World War III to distract from impeachment. When the president stopped travel with China, you had hysterics on MSNBC saying the president was engaged in, in racist xenophobia against China to distract from impeachment. The World Health Organization came out and criticized the president for that travel ban, and the media trumpeted it as proof that the president had gotten the policy wrong. Anthony Fauci said the president saved lives and bought us time. The media would prefer you to pay attention to the World Health Organization, but it was the World Health Organization we now know in hindsight was actually doing the dirty work of China and serving as a propagandist for China and wasn't telling the world truthful information and was dismissing Taiwan's raising the red flag about the virus at the time because the World Health Organization wanted to side with China against Taiwan. You cannot honestly tell me you may, you may be one of the few people who really does believe it, but I think most of you privately would be willing to acknowledge it. If Donald Trump were no longer in office, you would finally recognize the fact that had he acted the way people demanded he acted, you would have said at the time it was to distract from impeachment. That it's true. I mean, everything the president did at the time was considered a distraction from impeachment. So too would his handling of the virus. Also, there are a lot of people out there who say what the president really should have done, given the extent of it, is he should have shut down, uh, done a shutdown earlier, and he should have imposed a mask mandate. Joe Biden himself has come out and said those things are unconstitutional. You know, it, so here's the thing, and, and this is this is one one of the funny funny bits of all of this, is I took the time last night to write a very lengthy piece on all of this, including the whole section on what the president should have done differently, could have done differently, might have done differently, and probably needed to do differently in light of his knowledge about the coronavirus as he articulated in his own voice to Bob Woodward. Overwhelmingly, 
and this is a fact, overwhelmingly, when I encounter people on the left who tell me the president should have done things differently, and I dare to ask what should he have done differently, the only two things that they say are mask mandate and shut down the economy, shut us all down. The two things that even Joe Biden says are unconstitutional. Most of the people who are criticizing the president on these things are not actually very thoughtful. They're broken by partisanship. Orange man bad is their narrative. Anything the president does is, is despicable, disdainful, and has an ulterior motive that they themselves, fueled by their Trump hatred, know. The president is not perfect. There are things he could have done differently. There are things he probably should have done differently. There are things he should have done differently, no probably about it. But also, same with Bob Woodward, who withheld the knowledge of what the president said so that he could sell books while bodies piled up around him. Same with the media. Same with Andrew Cuomo. Same with the governor of, of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards. Same with the governor of New Jersey. It's not like Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats weren't also being given briefings on this stuff. They could have done something differently as well. But Nancy Pelosi was telling people they should go to Chinatown and enjoy Chinese New Year. I'm just not willing to single out the president of the United States on all of this when so many people got stuff wrong, including St. Anthony Fauci, who was telling people not to wear masks at the end of February, not the beginning of February, the end of February. And I, I, I firmly am committed to the belief that those who say that the president should have acted more decisively, more vocally, more boldly at the end of January and the beginning of February are the same people who would have accused him of distracting from impeachment had he done so. And yes, I want you to know this, and you, you need to know this. Let me look directly at my camera for the live stream audience so that you can see my face when I say this. I never on this program say things that I think you want to hear. In fact, I've got a history of burning bridges with my audience, saying things that I believe to be true that they don't like to hear about the president and everything else. But I firmly, firmly believe every single one of you seething with rage over what the president didn't do that you think he should have done. Had he done it when you wanted him to do it, you would have said he was distracting from impeachment. And you can never bring yourselves to admit impeachment was a failed distraction and impeachment itself cost lives in the virus. You want to blame Donald Trump, you should blame the Democrats for distracting the nation with a foolhardy impeachment where they couldn't get a single Republican on board despite the fact that some of these people are leaving office, despise the President of the United States. And the Democrats never even bothered to try to make a bipartisan case. They never did. And they distracted everyone while a pandemic was spreading. But orange man bad. And that makes you sleep well at night. I hope I can stop talking about the Bob Woodward book now because I'm exhausted by the topic. I, you know, I feel like I got an obligation to cover the news. I have covered the news. I'm, I'm done. I'm done with Woodward. Actually, I'm not done with Woodward. One final point about Bob Woodward. And then I want to move on to all the other news of the day. Also, John Pence, the vice president's um, nephew, is going to call in here in a minute. But one final point on Bob Woodward. Please let me make this and then I want to go to calls. Y'all, why would you ever talk to Bob Woodward? Why would you talk to Bob Woodward? If there's one 
thing the president should have done differently. That's me pounding on my desk. It's don't talk to Bob Woodward. No good has ever come from anyone talking to Bob Woodward. That's just the reality. Uh, Do not talk to Bob Woodward. And the president should not have talked to Bob Woodward. Bob Woodward wrote a book about this White House at the beginning of the Trump tenure in office. And uh, he... The president didn't get to talk to him. The book took a very negative take on the administration, and the president decided he wanted to be someone to talk to Bob Woodward. Well, the the staff humored the president on the second go-around with Woodward. The president spent 18 conversations with Bob Woodward recording the calls, and look what happened. The moral of the story, do not talk to Bob Woodward, Mr. President, ever. Don't do it. I don't care who the president is. Don't do it. Now, let's go to Jim. Calling from Decatur. Jim, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Well, we go through this periodically of suffering from what I call 2020 hindsight. We never can remember, and so that's probably why we never ask the question, well, what did this guy know at the time? What did any of us know at the time? Uh, Governor Cuomo sent all those COVID-19 elderly back to the nursing homes. But in his possible defense, I don't know that I necessarily agree with this, but in his possible defense, we could say he was worried about his New York hospital's beds overflowing. That was a real concern. Whether or not that was still a good idea, I kind of doubt it. But at the, could I at the time have assessed it and come to the same possible conclusion, I don't know. And so we just don't want to let water go under the bridge without splashing around in it some more. I'm glad you said that. Um, Now, I I, I will say this. Uh, we, We do now know from Woodward's tapes of the president in his own voice that he did know just how much more aggressive the coronavirus was uh, before the public knew. Uh, While the media was still telling people it was not as bad as the flu, the president was telling Bob Woodward on the phone that he knew it was at least five times more deadly than the flu and and more contagious than the flu. Uh, At the same time, you're you're right on on all these situations, and and I do think part of our problem right now is the hindsight issue. Is everybody wants to go back and say, in, in hindsight, we should have done this or that, and because you didn't, it's bad, but we don't really know. It, it's very much like um, we now have this habit in this country of looking at people from 200 years ago and judging them by our current standards. We're looking at, at things from, from nine months ago when we didn't know stuff, saying, oh, well, you should have done this, except we didn't know that. Uh, we now know from the president's own words there are some things he did know he didn't act like he knew. But there's still a lot he didn't know. I mean, keep in mind that it was still, I mean, Fauci at the end of February was telling people don't wear masks, among other things. Um, but I, let, let me t- take one issue with you, Jim, on, on the Cuomo part. Yes, it is very it is very true. His concern could have been a hospital overrun. He hadn't said that, but that could be a concern. At the same time, we do know it was February 15th that Ron DeSantis's advisors were telling him, You've got to shut down long-term care facilities. You've got to protect the elderly. You've got to keep infected elderly patients from going back to nursing homes. And Florida as well was beginning to worry about the surge in Florida and the potential for overrun of hospitals. And they set up emergency facilities to protect the elderly and to keep them quarantined if they had the virus. And Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio didn't do that. On the same day, 
that Ron DeSantis was doing this. Cuomo was giving the order to send uh, infected elderly patients back into nursing homes. So we shouldn't judge them in hindsight. But I think it is fair to judge them based on the actions of the other governors who got what right and who got what wrong. At the same time, I continue to believe, and this point drives everybody crazy on both sides, but there's a level of grace that we have to extend to everyone in this situation, Democrat and Republican and Bob Woodward, because there is a lot we know now that we didn't know know then. And a lot of the initial information we had from China was willfully wrong. And we've got to, we got to be mindful of that. I think we do have to be mindful and show some grace to everyone. And no one wants to show grace to anyone, particularly the left and the media to the president. They don't want to show any grace. It's all his fault. Everyone would have lived to the president done things differently. The things they say should have done differently are the things that even Joe Biden says the president can't do. And we should be mindful of those points as well when it comes to coverage and, and, and concern over the virus. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, the phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I am awaiting John Pence. Uh, he is the nephew of the vice president, and he's out actually on the campaign trail uh, campaigning for the president and the vice president and talking a lot about economic policy. In the meantime, I want to go back to the phones, uh, and I want to go to Matthew calling from Atlanta. Matthew, welcome to the program. Hello, Eric. How you doing? First-time caller, long-time listener. Thanks very much. Yeah, so um, a couple uh, months ago, maybe maybe six months ago, I was uh, messaged you on um, Instagram, and I said that it's possible that people will be double voting. And lo and behold, looks like um, people will be trying to do it with in-person and mail ballots. But the interesting thing is it looks like America looks at third world countries with disdain when they have their elections and people have to show up and put their finger in the inkwell after they vote to ensure that people don't vote. I'm glad you make that point because it it aggravates. In fact, I don't know if you've seen this, but yesterday, uh, Rahm Emanuel's brother, Zeke Emanuel, who designed Obamacare, actually there was an interview and he said that in-person voting is perfectly fine. Uh, it's no less safe than going to the grocery store to buy groceries. Uh, I, I, it infuriates me that we devalue in this country in-person voting, uh, particularly when it's such a, a major deal in third world countries. I mean, you, you just brought up the, the point of Iraq and, and the people voting and they had the, the purple ink on their finger and, and Afghanistan, the same thing as, as, a, as a mark of success and progress and democracy. And in this country, people don't want to bother to show up. You know, ironically, ironically, do you know the number one group? of people who want to vote in person at the polls, it's not Republicans. The number one group of people in the United States of America who want to vote in person, that would be black voters. Uh, It took a long time for black voters to be able to go to the polls without intimidation. The Democrats would have them believe that they are intimidated every time they go to the polls, but that's not really true. Uh, Black voters actually want to go to the polls. They want to uh, go vote in person. They they earned it. And it's it's a bunch of of white people who just want to mail it in. Now, full disclosure, I've requested my absentee ballot 
because I know on election day, I get exceedingly busy uh, doing TV hits and radio and everything else. And I don't want to forget to show up and vote. And I don't, I don't really want to stand in the line on election day this year with the virus. So I'm going to vote absentee, uh, but I've requested my ballot. But normally I don't like to vote absentee. I like to go in person. I don't mind hanging out in the lines. And I honestly think if, if I were king for a day, if I were king for a day, I would ban all early and absentee voting, except for people abroad who can't get back to the United States, including the military, and possibly those people who are infirm and can't get out of either the hospital or nursing homes. But every single other able-bodied American show up on election day, stand in line together, freeze together, sweat together, get rained on, get wet, whatever. Stand there together and go vote as a people. It makes it even easier for people to be intolerant of their fellow Americans and how they vote by not having to stand in a line with them and get to know them. There's actually, you know, I was going to talk about this later, but but this is a perfect jumping off point. Um, there is, let's see, uh, th- there's a website that I read. It's a tech website. And I want to read you the headline on this piece. Trump voters should face negative consequences for their actions. This is a, uh, it, it, the website, I, I don't want to, I don't want the guy harassed, um, but he's endorsing this. Uh, and he's actually referring to a piece written by a designer and a writer called Gabrielle Blair. She's the creator of a a website called the Design Mom Blog. And I want to read you this. The other day I saw a tweet where a person described that when they find out someone they know personally supports Trump, they lose all respect for them instantly. I liked the tweet and retweeted it, but stopped short of sharing it on Instagram. Why? I suppose it's because, like the author of the tweet, I also know Trump supporters in real life. They already know I think Trump is gross, and they know that I frequently criticize Trump supporters as a group, but I've hesitated to tell them directly that I've lost respect for them individually. But I woke up this morning, read reports of the final night of the Republican National Convention, an event where hundreds of federal employees broke many laws, grew deeply angry, and now my hesitation is gone. And basically, she tells them, stop coming to her website. She doesn't create content for them. They sicken her stomach. She believes they need to face negative consequences, that they're not decent people, that they're abhorrent, and uh, that she doesn't really want to know people who's supporting. The level of brokenness, uh, not, not respecting your phone, this is a political decision. It's, 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 this is a political decision. And, and the left has so internalized this mythology that the president is somehow an authoritarian. They actually are becoming the authoritarian. They, they, they've so internalized the mythology that the president's a tyrant, they're becoming tyrannical. Uh, if you don't agree with them, you must be punished. If you don't vote their way, you must be silenced. If you don't agree with them on, on social policy, you must be destroyed. If anything, honestly, you, you know, y'all you, you know my feelings on the president, and and this is one of the main reasons why I think it, it, it's I got an obligation to go support the guy is because I think people like this need to lose. 
they need to see that the president's not a tyrant. They need to see the president's not authoritarian. They need to see that after four more years, the president will be retired thanks to constitutional term limits. They need to see that all of their internalized hate towards the president and his supporters really isn't true. And if Joe Biden wins, they'll never get that opportunity and they will smugly sleep in their bed at night thinking they're right about all this stuff when they've been wrong the whole time. Uh, the level of contempt these people have for Trump voters, largely because they live in, in sheltered bubbles of progressivism where they never have to reach out to their fellow person, that they, they don't understand what the struggles are of a blue-collar worker in America, they, they don't understand the life of your average American outside some urban utopia that's actually a third-world hellhole these days as Antifa comes through burning the place down, uh, and they still blame they blame Donald Trump for that. It's amazing how Donald Trump has such massive mind control over Joe Biden's voters that he can command them at will to burn down cities. This is the mythology in which the left leads these days because it makes them sleep well at night because deep down, really, they're more marginalized and they kind of know it. Uh, most Americans don't actually share their progressive values, nor do they share their, their vision for economic chaos in the United States. Uh, with the Joe Biden administration where we raised $4 trillion. Joe Biden wants to raise more taxes on Americans than even Hillary Clinton wanted. That's ridiculous. Uh, that's a perfect segue uh, for John Pence, who is joining me uh, from the campaign trail. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Hello I'm from great. Georgia. So, uh, I, I, well, I'm, I'm glad you're able to call in here and, and talk about because I, I was just discussing with the audience. There's this piece I was reading from this so-called mom blogger that basically she thinks uh, Trump voters are terrible, that they need to suffer negative consequences. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. my personal thought is that, you know, if Joe Biden gets elected, uh, $4 trillion in taxes, the whole nation will share negative consequences if, if Biden becomes president. Right. There's been there's been some reckless political rhetoric uh, like this anti-vaccine accusation when that shouldn't be political. It should be about saving lives, as the president said. But there's a freedom of expression, Eric, in this country, but there's not a freedom of destruction or cancellation. And I think a lot of uh, Americans, I think the American people see through uh, the, the party of control that is today's Democrat Party. Yeah, well, I hope so. Um, it, it, it's, it really is infuriating to me the level of intolerance from the left towards people who support the president. They consider him tyrannical and a totalitarian, and yet they're the ones who are out there engaged in cancel culture and the like. Um, it, it, but it, I, I, I really, I, I want to move beyond that uh, with you to, to talk about some of the big economic policy differences. I know you're out on the yeah. campaign trail. Yeah. I, I know you're the vice president's nephew. And, and so people say, well, of course, he's going to be on the campaign trail. But I would really love to just let you say in your own words, why are you out there uh, campaigning? If you care about freedom, if you care about uh, what makes America great, uh, and if you if you see America as a as the land of of the free, uh, not something that's systematically this or systematically that, I think everyone should care about this election and everyone should get involved. And uh, I left the job I was working at a law firm in Indiana when uh, the president picked my uncle to run. And I've been with the Trump campaign ever since and seen how this party's grown. Because President Trump is putting America first, he's keeping his promises, and he's fighting for us. He's he's fighting for our freedoms. Now, when you get out on the campaign trail, what what are you experiencing out there? Uh, 
I'm assuming, I mean, you're, you're obviously not holding these giant rallies, but, but how do you campaign uh, in the present age? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a time-honored tradition of uh, conservatives. It's called common sense. Uh, we, we, we do this safely and responsibly, but everyone knows, as the president's calling to safely reopen schools, it's very different to look someone in the eye, Eric, and say, thank you. Uh, I actually thanked a, a lady named Cindy who's made over 90,000 phone calls in Columbus, Georgia, for the president to thank her and then ask the room, you know, what more can we do for America in the next 53 days in defense of our freedoms? And, uh, you know, this Republican Party continues to mobilize, organize, and do the hard work of campaigning. Uh, I was in uh, Cairo, Georgia last night. And you're, you're seeing the Trump campaign all over the country making the case directly to the American people for, for the four more years. On behalf of the people of Georgia, I, I do want to note and appreciate that you said Cairo instead of Cairo. <laughs> so some of the names you know, around it. Took it listen. days of practice. I, I I can imagine, um, I, you know, so so my, my wife's family is from from South Georgia and you, they're from Vienna, which the rest of the world says is Vienna. And I had to learn that early uh-huh, in our uh-huh, marriage uh-huh. that you, you got to get these names right. Cairo and and Vienna and Unadilla. So let, let me ask well, you. We, uh, yeah. go, no, go ahead. And I said we we have a Versailles, Indiana. I'm, I'm told it's pronounced Versailles. <laughs> forgot about that one. Uh, okay, now l- let me ask you, 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 being in Georgia, going to places like, like Cairo and, and the like, uh, what can people do if they want to get involved in the campaign here in Georgia to do phone banking or anything else? What do they need to know? What should they do? Thank you. Great question. Uh, easy. There's a website. It's called uh, TrumpVictory.com. It actually has like a heat map where you can see thousands of events happening every week. Uh, in your area, across the country, volunteers doing phone banks, volunteers uh, canvassing, going out to knock doors. You know, just last week here in the state of Georgia, volunteers knocked over 140,000 doors. And as, you know, one would know, driving from Cairo up to Columbus, Georgia, some doors are pretty far apart in this state. And, um, you know, this is, this is just the, the Army for Trump that's mobilizing and, and getting involved and doing the hard work of campaigning to make sure that this president uh, is, is in Washington and, and fighting for us for, for the next four years. Okay, I've got this pulled up. This is actually pretty cool. So I can go in state by state and I can see the, uh, I, I can see the events. I can see where everybody is coming. Oh, look, yeah. you're, you're going to be in, in, in my town uh, tomorrow, yeah. it looks like, in Macon. Or no, today in Macon, this yeah. afternoon. Yeah, Macon. Yeah, you see oh, nice. that? That's where I am. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, I'll be in Macon in a couple hours. So I'm going to make that drive here in a second. And, um, you know, we're, we, we have the campaign. We follow the president's lead, which is go out and speak directly to the American people. Uh, and this president has never hesitated to, to be with the people uh, and, and to make this case, uh, this America first agenda um, for the American people with the American people. And yeah, that's just what, that's just how we operate here. That, uh, oh, look, uh, oh, well, see, okay. This is somewhat 
this is somewhat painful for me because you're going to be my accountant's office and it reminds me that I've got to deal with my taxes. But <laughs> but for those of you in Macon yeah. where I am, uh, this afternoon on, on Spring Street, uh, John's going to be there. So now, are you doing this? I'm assuming you're, you're doing this not just Georgia, but all over the place. You're, you're just nonstop all going to these place. places. Um, yep, I'll, I'll be uh, in, in northern New Hampshire. I'll be in uh, Houston, uh, Texas, not Houston. Georgia yeah. um, this yeah. weekend. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're, we're just, it's just a grassroots movement. And, 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 and you know, we, we now, this movement is part of the Republican Party. It's why the Republican Party is growing. And it's just, it's, it's really is unprecedented. I, I can tell you, Eric, it, the enthusiasm on the ground. And just look at the boat parades just that are organically happening. Uh, people are more energized and mobilized than ever to to reelect uh, President President Trump. Well, listen, uh, best of luck to you out there on the campaign trail. And, and I, I'm glad you're coming to Macon. Um, you, you'll like it here. And uh, just man, I, and I know you're, you're still technically a, a newlywed. You're about a year out from from getting married. So and, and oh, here yeah. you are on the campaign yeah. trail. So God bless you for that. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Yeah, we'll celebrate. Uh, my wife Giovanna and I will celebrate our uh, one-year anniversary on Monday. So I'll I'll be back home for that. <laughs> good. Yes. Do do that, please. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. It's good <laughs> to talk to you. All right. You too. Take care. John Pence. Uh, he is the he's an economic advisor for the president's campaign. Actually, married to a relative, Kellyanne Conway. He is the vice president's nephew as well. Uh, for those of you in Middle Georgia, he will be in Macon. This afternoon, uh, let me get the details for you. He will be in Macon this afternoon at 2 p.m. on Spring Street at the Trump Victory Office. Um, there by the Zaxby's on Street, Spring Street, downtown Macon. Uh, go to TrumpVictory.com if you want to find out more and if you want to get involved. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The Atlanta Police Union has come out with an endorsement for Doug Collins. Uh, here's Greg Bluestein in the AJC. And Atlanta Police Union is backing Doug Collins' bid for U.S. Senate after the Republican called for the removal of Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard from the investigation into a high-profile shooting that led to charges against two officers. Collins is set to appear with members of the International Brotherhood of Police Officers Local 623 Union on Thursday to tout the endorsement in his campaign to unseat Senator Kelly Leffler. The four-term congressman has traveled the state to urge Howard to step aside and allow an independent prosecutor to take up the case after the district attorney charged two Atlanta police officers with Rayshard Brooks' killing. And he sent a letter to U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr urging him to open an investigation into Howard's egregious abuse of power and accused him of being driven by political reasons. The longtime Atlanta prosecutor, Paul Howard, was trounced in an August runoff by Fannie Willis, one of his former deputies. The son of a Georgia State Patrol trooper, Collins has ratcheted up his criticism of Howard to both demonstrate his support for law enforcement and undercut supporters of Leffler, who have not echoed his call. Among them is Attorney General Chris Carr, who has pointed to state laws that show his office has the legal authority to appoint another prosecutor to a case only if a court disqualifies the DA or if the DA recuses himself. Howard has denied accusations he was politically motivated to bring criminal charges against Garrett Rolfe, 
who fired the shots that killed Brooks and Officer Devin Bronson both have said they followed police protocol and did nothing wrong. Uh, you know, Fannie Willis, the incoming district attorney in Fulton County over this, has said that uh, she's going to have to review the case that in large part because uh, because Paul Howard made it part of his campaign and brought it up in campaign speeches uh, that there are allegations of political motivation by the DA and also he could have tainted a jury in Fulton County and it may be cost prohibitive for Fulton County to have to move the case to a different county outside the metro area which they're probably going to have to do. The district attorney, Paul Howard, made such a big deal over his indictment of Rolf, uh, and, and the media also made such a big deal of it. I don't know that the guy can get a, a fair trial. And I, I got to say, I feel bad for the guy. I genuinely feel bad for Garrett Rolf. I, I don't know the guy. I don't know his family. Uh, but I feel bad for him to be put through the ringer. All he was doing was doing his job. And I, I frankly do think you got to judge each of these cases individually. And I don't think that guy did anything wrong in that case. But the DA wanted to win re-election and lost anyway. Gosh, how did we get to the third hour? <laughs> Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Ah, no, I'm not done with the critical. I, I don't want to spend a lot more time on uh, the critical theory stuff, uh, but a, a buddy of mine who listened to yesterday's show, he's in the, the Presbyterian Church in America with me, the PCA, and, and he's alarmed because there are a couple of very prominent PCA churches that are coming out in support of reparations uh, for slavery, which I, I vehemently oppose. Uh, those reparations were paid uh, in blood on battlefields across this country. Uh, and uh, he, he pointed me to a guy. I don't know the guy. He's a, a minister within the PCA. His name is Gregory Thompson, who tried. Now, this is before Tim Keller piped up. Uh, and I've read you the Tim Keller stuff on critical theory. But I just I want to walk you through some of this so you understand there there is a, a another side to this story. I, I feel like I should represent, but I, I've got to I, I got to go line by line through this and just point out some of this. Um, he writes some general observations on a few of the harmful tendencies found in a number of recent Christian treatments of cultural Marxism, which he claims is not a thing, and it very much is, and critical theory, which is a thing, and the religion of social justice. Uh, he says I can't even written in the mode of critical theory, but which will not be further elaborated or debated on Facebook. Uh, but may emerge in an article at some point. Whatever. L listen to some of this. Tendency not to disclose that we are not actually trained in critical theory or really that familiar with it, but that we just heard some things about it from our cousin or maybe read some articles from people we trust and now consider ourselves sufficiently competent to make sweeping pronouncements about a series of discrete, interconnected, and incredibly complex disciplinary traditions, even though such behavior is slightly problematic for a people committed to truth, but I got nearly 200 likes, so whatever, Aslan is on the move. 
in other words, uh, th- this this is the response of someone who buys into critical theory within the Presbyterian Church in America, one of the more conservative denominations in America, who I'm told is is on the verge of coming out for slave reparations, among other things. And uh, I'm sorry, but if you haven't trained deeply like I have in critical theory, you're just not smart enough to accurately articulate it. The, the tendency to engage Marx's materialism with a theologically infected idealism that is problematic in its own right. Note, if you're writing about critical theory and don't understand what I just said, you should stop writing about it. Ha ha! See? You're not aware of your own biases when you engage with Marx. Therefore, you can't actually understand Marx. Only the critical theorists can actually understand Marx. The tendency to remain strangely uninterested in the terrible social context in which Marxism emerged in the first place and why it continues to resonate with the poor and outcast around the world today. Aha! So according to this advocate of critical theory, that we have to understand that Marxism came from from dark times where people were treated unfairly, and maybe that'll, it, it sounds like a defense of Marxism, does it not? The tendency to habitually mischaracterize critical theory as a worldview or a form of philosophical essentialism without realizing that such things are in large mirror the very thing that uh, critical theory critiques. By, by the way, it, it's worth noting that this guy essentially is saying uh, that you can't consider critical theory a worldview because critical theory critiques worldviews, which does in fact then make it a worldview. The tendency to seriously reduce or conflate the breadth and the diversity of the theoretical streams that flow into critical theory into a cartoonishly coherent whole without realizing that not even Marx held one view of Marxism. Where, where do you even begin with a statement like this? It is. This is very much like the statement that uh, we need to keep doing communism because no communist government has ever actually implemented communism as it was intended to be implemented. This guy is in the Presbyterian Church in America. The tendency to suggest that because one thinker or leader in the Marxist tradition thought or said or did a thing that the entire tradition is thereby committed to that thing, which if true... A, if true, and B, consistently applied, would be bad news for the Christian tradition. Okay, so uh, not all Marxists have supported the genocide of those with whom they disagree, so we can't conclude that Marxism supports genocide. You you got that? That's, That's what he's arguing. The tendency not to let critical theorists speak for themselves, but to let them speak only through our interpretation of them, which actually illustrate this this is word salad gobbledygook. We, we've got to let the critical theorists speak for themselves. And if they're not clear, it's our fault, not their fault. Again, this goes back to Tim Keller. Remember, one of the big issues of critical theory is that uh, language constructs our reality. And if you're in pain, but the critical theorists tell you that's pleasure, well, by God, you better call it pleasure or else because that's what they meant. The tendency to make misleading statements with respect to the complex ways in which theories actually take shape in the world by profoundly overstating the ideological coherence of the current movement or by wrongly suggesting that Christians who participate in the movement are buying wholesale into another gospel. Well, they are. 
And by the way, so so let's 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 just dwell on this for a minute. The the to make the tendency to make misleading statements with respect to complex ways in which theories actually take shape in the world, to profoundly overstating the ideological coherence of the current movement. Uh, so there isn't ideological coherence, and yet this guy wants us to use critical theory. Why should you know we, we in Christianity we have this thing called orthodoxy, where over thousands of years you settle on the way things work, and through orthodox arguments and making sure it's true to scripture. And here, no, it's ideologically incoherent. Let's run with it. The tendency to triumphantly produce articles in which black people say they are trained Marxists without having the slightest idea what that even means. So we're <laughs> we're not allowed to take people's word for it. So the Black Lives Matters founders call themselves Marxists, but we're not allowed to use that because they may mean something else with the word than what we mean. The tendency to appear incapable of differing strongly from another person or group of people, in this case, critical theorists, and even to be utterly exhausted and annoyed by some of those differences, and yet working with them toward a common goal without freaking out that we will be corrupted by them unless we live in ideological quarantine. I, so much of this is word salad. Also, by the way, it, it also goes on to, he also goes on to essentially say that, um, uh, here, the willing, the tendency to willfully neglect the long tradition of Christian Marxists around the world, especially in the Catholic Church, you Presbyterians, and to traffic in the demonstrably false binary of Christian versus Marxist without realizing such a binary has more to do with Rocky IV than it does with actual Christian history on the planet. That right there is called baloney. Uh, it, it is, it's, this, this is... And I, I need you to be exposed to this because this is considered one of the big thinkers within the conservative Presbyterian denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. If if the, the Marxists have infested the culturally conservative, orthodox, biblically orthodox, conservative Presbyterian Church in America, uh, you, you need to be aware of this stuff. You need to be mindful of it. The denial of cultural Marxism, it really is funny to me how the left just flat out denies there's cultural Marxism. Do you not see them marching in the streets, burning down buildings? And all of this goes to an inability to speak with moral clarity on what is right and what is wrong. Yes, the looting of the building is bad, but we must understand why they looted the building. That's where you head with this critical theory stuff. This is all word salad gobbledygook that essentially you've got to let, this is what this guy is arguing. This is Greg Thompson. He's a PCA pastor. And he's arguing that you have to let the critical theorists speak for themselves and define themselves. And if you don't go along with exactly what they say, but interpret it differently, well, you're doing it badly. This gets to Tim Keller's critique of critical theory, which is that they believe language is what shapes reality. And that if you essentially, if you describe pain as pleasure, then we're to accept that that is actually pleasure. And we're to enjoy it because that's pleasure. It's very much in the same way the communists could look at the people, the, look at Bernie Sanders and the breadlines. Bernie Sanders defended breadlines in the Soviet Union as proof no one was starving because they could line up to get food. No one was ever left behind. That's what we're dealing with here. 
this is a pastor in a conservative American dom- denomination who's trying to lead that denomination. You, you've got the, the Scott Sauls of, of the Nashville area. You've got this guy and others who are embracing people who believe in critical theory within a conservative evangelical denomination in this country. We are in dangerous times. The word salad approach to this stuff is bad. And that's essentially what we have here. Let me read you one more. This, uh, critic, this is about critics of critical theory and their tendency to reframe the discussion in such a way that the church emerges as the actual victim, victimized by the so-called priests of social justice who totally hurt our feelings and the so-called gospel of Marxism, which threatens our beliefs, thereby not only taking the attention off the people who are, to use one example, dying from asphyxiation in the streets after eight minutes and 46 seconds, but also continuing the long and venerable tradition of making everything about ourselves. You see that you, you, you can't defend yourself from this because if you say that cultural, that critical theory is bad, well, then you're distracting from George Floyd and you're making it all about yourself. For some people, I realize this stuff sounds good, but this, this is like pseudo-intellectual stuff to me. I mean, this guy even admits that there's no coherence in the ideology and yet wants Christian denominations to embrace this stuff. This, this is ridiculous gobbledygook word salad nonsense and, and somehow we're supposed to treat it as real. We're, we're supposed to treat it as, as sustainable. We're supposed to treat this seriously as a way to interpret scripture, to analyze scripture, and, and, and to share the gospel with people. How can you, when they already admit that there's there's no coherent philosophy here, and by the way, um, not actually treating uh, the, the Marxism as being dismissive of Marxism. Marxism has killed more people globally than even Nazism. And to look at, this is the same way that the left has always said, well, no one's ever really done communism the right way. Here comes a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, who is claiming that no one's really done Marxism right. And you, you can't hold one person getting Marxism wrong for another person who, who may eventually get it right, that, that may not cause the genocide of millions of people. You've got Marxists running China today. You go through China and you'll see murals that have the picture of Karl Marx right next to Chairman Mao. Are we not to allow that to speak for itself? This guy would argue you can't. That They're just getting it wrong. You know, there's not intellectual consistency here. Here's the bottom line. If you're a person of faith, you believe there's an absolute truth. You believe there's a real truth. And... This guy is embracing something other than real truth as a way to interpret truth. He, he's willing to embrace something amorphous that can be shaped by the person into whose head it is implanted and let that person 
uh, speak, and and he's dismissive of people like John McWhorter and people like David Brooks and others for pointing out that this really is in and of itself a religion. It really is a faith, and it is a faith in it, its early forms that is still being shaped by its gospel adherence. And this guy is largely admitting it; it's still being shaped, and it's different for everyone. And yet, we should apply it. This is this is bad news, and it's that it's in a conservative religious denomination, Christian denomination in the United States. Those who are in the denomination, myself included, need to be vigilant against this sort of stuff uh, and reject this sort of stuff and 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 push back forcefully against it because you read this sort of stuff and, and none of this really makes sense. And, and the level of dismissivism that, oh, Marxism, you know, it's really not, not a big deal. Christian Marxists are just fine. No, 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 no. In fact, in the history of Central America, uh, Catholic priests who embrace uh, Christian Marxism is they turned a blind eye to genocide. And that's not me. That's actual true history. Uh, and that this guy is dismissing all that. Man, uh, I, I, I fear for the denomination if, if that's the way they're going. And I realize some of you are listening to this and say, well, I'm not in that. I'm, I'm Episcopalian. <laughs> um, doesn't matter. It's coming for all of us. If it's gotten into something like the PCA, it's coming for all of us everywhere. You better pay attention to it. Well, I, I found a movie that can be turned into a best picture that, that has all the diversity requirements. You're, you know, the, the Academy Awards is saying that unless you've got diverse movies now, They've got to be diverse in their casting. They've got to be diverse behind the scenes. You've got to have uh, so many in the, the gay community, so many lesbians, so many people in wheelchairs, uh, all, all of that. I, I look forward to, to them remaking 1970, by the way, with a wheelchair-bound lesbian as the the chief of the British squadron trying to go across uh, the, the German front to get a message. Man, that, that river scene is going to be something with the wheelchair. Uh, nonetheless, uh, th so they have decided uh, th that you got to have all this diversity. I know a movie that could be made. Get this. This is actually an incredible story. Uh, the, um, the California fire, there were 200. I, I just, this, this, is, this is profound to me. 200 people in California, surrounded by the fire out there, by the wildfire. And Cal Fire told them they were on their own, that they would have to do whatever they could to save themselves. Which meant they were all going to die. 200 people were going to die because the California Fire Rescue Team said, nope, can't, can't come to you. You're on your own. So the California National Guard loaded up helicopters, Chinook helicopters, and Cal Fire, the California Fire Department ordered them to stand down, told them, no, you can't go do it. It's too dangerous. Don't go. And the California National Guard gave the California firefighters the middle finger and rescued all 200 California residents. I just, I, 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 we need to, to meditate on this point for a minute that not only did the fire department say, no, it's too risky. Don't go, but abandoned 200 people to a fire to their deaths. And it was the national guard that saved them. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I really genuinely am flabbergasted by this. I, I, I mean, I, I really, really actually am flabbergasted that they would abandon 200 people. I, I saw the pictures. Now they could turn this into a movie because 
it's there was a diverse crew. I, I saw the pictures of the people. Um, I, I saw the pictures of the people on the helicopter and, and the, the National Guard soldiers who rescued them. And uh, they were super diverse, super diverse. And I just, I, I think it was amazing to see what they did. It, it's horrific to see what they had to go through to get there. It's horrific, but it's also deeply impressive that they would do that. These are real heroes who did this. Um, the, the, and this again, let, let me read you. This is actually off what, what's happening here. This is from social media. Cal Fire was alerted that 200 people were entirely encircled in fire. They formally declared them beyond the ability of California Fire to save, effectively telling them they were on their own and likely to die. The California National Guard spun up two helicopters and headed out to help. On the ride over, Cal Fire called them repeatedly to call them off and tell them to go back to base. It was too dangerous. Flying using night vision through high crosswinds, smoke, burning embers, and rough terrain, the California National Guard rescued all 200 people. Their efforts were captured through their own pictures. Huge, huge props to Cal National Guard. Uh, there are videos of them, uh, the evacuees from the Creek Fire exit a Chinook helicopter from the California National Guard's 40th Combat Aviation Brigade after landing safely. 200 people. 200 people. They stuffed the helicopter full of people, stripped the helicopter down. The helicopter normally holds about 30 people, stripped them down so that they could hold those 200 people and saved their lives when the fire department was going to abandon them. That just amazing heroism at work there uh, by the National Guard to save those people. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. There is so much going on in the wide world of sports right now. I, I actually, so I'm, I'm smoking wings this afternoon to go hang out with a buddy and, and watch uh, the the NFL tonight, watch actual football. Uh, but now you got high school sports around the country deciding what's going on and stuff. I, I thought it would, I, he actually was texting me last night uh, as I was starting to text him to say, you should come on. Uh, Dave Briggs is joining me to talk about all of this. How are you? I'm great, brother. How are you? Yeah, it's a good time of year. We've got football finally back. No preseason action, so we're all just guessing what it's going to look like tonight, What how the protests might impact it all. But the NBA has been outstanding, although the ratings have been awful. And high school football was on my radar, and that's why I reached down to you, my state, Connecticut. Thousands of players, parents, and coaches protesting at the state capitol because our state canceled the entire season of high school football, which I should be unbiased. I'm not. I find it outrageous, just an awful decision by the Connecticut State Health Department, and hopefully the governor, Ned Lamont, reverses on, on that decision Friday. Well, you know, let me ask you about that one because you and I, we had talked about this and I saw some of your tweets on this, that they've been doing uh, like practices and, and the like throughout the summer. They haven't had any instances of the virus and yet they want to cancel it. Statewide, they've been practicing full contact, full teams out there in the heat, going through the drills, uh, hitting, you mentioned it, they're, they're grouped together, they're not social distancing. We just haven't seen the science 
there's been zero spread in Connecticut. And the few instances you've heard about with college football programs, there has been no science about the spread on the football field. Presumably it's been in the training rooms, the locker rooms, the weight rooms and things of that nature. But now in that instance, Connecticut has gone out of their way to be safe and to wear masks and to social distance. It's not just that, but you look at the state of Connecticut, we are third uh, best, third lowest cases in the United States, three per 100,000. And yet we are one of the few states in the country that has canceled the season entirely, not punting it to the spring, not moving it to the winter, but canceling it entirely. And you've got thousands of parents saying, number one, at least let us have a say, which we don't. Let us see the science. What about, you know, Eric, think about these parents whose kids have worked 10, 15 years every day, blood, sweat, and tears. And maybe there's only 20 or 30 of them, but those kids that are scholarship type of athletes have that ripped from their hands. You can't compete for a scholarship if you're not on the football field, and those scholarships will be handed out. They'll just go to kids from other states. What about those parents that can't afford to send their kids to college? Imagine just ripping three, $400,000 of education from them. And then I talked to a lot of the coaches there last night who said their biggest concern is what happens to these kids when they're not playing high school football. Friday nights, they're on the field. Uh, instead, what are they going to be? They're going to be drinking beers. They're going to be at parties, probably not social distancing, likely not wearing masks. And football is the reason for them to perform in school. It gives them structure and discipline. It helps their mental health. Literally every reason points to finding a way for these kids to play high school football and to play safely. And that's not what they do. And you see it largely along political lines, Eric. Most of the decisions to not play are in largely blue states like Connecticut. Most of the states that are moving ahead to play are red states, Texas, Florida, Oklahoma. You name it, they're playing despite seven times the COVID prevalence that we have here. Yeah, you know, that's the thing that I have found most fascinating in all of this. Uh, Regardless of any of the commentary that's out there on the politics of it, it it really is, for example, you've got uh, New York City, New York now, which actually has a very low rate of the virus, is not reopening schools, and, and a lot of states actually are, and I that that have higher rates of the virus, and Parents are getting really frustrated, and now you've got this scenario in Connecticut. The whole thing just sounds a little absurd to me. Yeah, and I I think it's really unfortunate that we're viewing it largely through uh, political lines, red and blue states. Let us see the science. I mean, we can all agree that let's let the science lead the way here. But when the Connecticut State Health Department won't show you the science of why, so they've labeled football, contact football, a high-risk activity without providing the science behind that. Again, zero spread on football practice throughout the state. They are moving ahead. Ice hockey tournaments, indoors, full contact throughout the state of Connecticut, where kids are coming from other states, mind you, and indoor volleyball. Indoor volleyball will proceed here in the state of Connecticut. So, look, for those people out there that are saying, oh, you you Republicans are are not listening to the science. That's not true. We just want to see the science. And the Duke epidemiologist, uh, head of the ACC's medical advisory board, he believes that they can play college football 
safely, and that's part of the reason the ACC is moving forward, the SEC is moving forward down in your country, and then you've got the Pac-12 and the Big Ten deciding not to play. So largely, again, along political lines, not necessarily following the signs, but I believe Connecticut will reverse this decision on Friday. I think they were shocked at the outrage, and I think they were stunned at the participation by the players. Uh, It was all walks of life. It was a very diverse protest. And, oh, everyone's saying, well, these kids are jeopardizing themselves by protesting. A hundred percent of these kids were wearing masks. I was very impressed how politically active these kids were in their own future. Wow. Well, you know, so let's switch from high school to the NFL. What are you Mm -hmm. expecting with the protests? And I continue to hear grumbling from a lot of people who are NFL fans and just feel like they need an escape from everything by looking at sports. And and now they're they're upset with the level of political activism they're having to see when they're going to the sports to get away from the political activism. I'm very concerned, Eric, and, and it's because of what I'm seeing in the NBA. I'm a diehard sports fan. You don't have to worry about me. I, I, I watch everything. Um, but I, take my Denver Nuggets, who are not usually this good. So they're in contention playing the L.A. Clippers. I'm talking with friends and family from Colorado. Hey, what do you think of the Nuggets? Not one of them will watch because all it is is a constant reminder of the social injustice, the Black Lives Matter movement. As you know, it's painted on the NBA court. Most of the interviews that they give post game, instead of talking about the game, go black, right back to the Black Lives Matter movement. I talked to the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, Mark Lassery, about this, and I said, it may be a good cause, but don't you feel it's bad business? And he said, I don't, but even if it is, we believe we're doing the right thing. Well, their ratings are down 20%, Eric. When there's nothing to watch on television, the NBA playoffs should be gangbusters. They're down 20%. 1.9 million people watching on average. 3.5 million were watching two years ago, man. My concern is the NFL has the same problem. But Roger Goodell ain't no commissioner. Adam Silver is a very different man and the NFL owners are also very different than NBA right. owners, far more conservative. There's going to be protests, but the NFL learned their lesson with Colin Kaepernick. It hurt their wallet and it hurt it immediately. So there's going to be protests. There's going to be a lot of players taking a knee, but I think they're going to do everything they can to keep it off the sidelines and off the television broadcast. Most importantly, I think what Goodell will hope to do is let the protest go on keep it off the TV, keep the focus on the sport. If they don't, their ratings will pay, no doubt about it. Yeah, I think they will. And, you know, you bring up the the point of Goodell is no Adam Silver. I have not had a chance to talk to you about this, but the wokeness of the the NBA, uh, particularly in light of the China situation, and, for example, ESPN, which – uh, would yank the cameras away from people holding up the protest signs. And now you got the situation of Disney having Phil Milan in an area where there are concentration camps. It, it just seems yeah. like the, the the moral inconsistency of the NBA and, and corporations like Disney is really starting to uh, sink into the conscience of the public. Yeah, the hypocrisy is, is really too sick to even see through regarding how the NBA just fell to their knees when China threatened. I mean, there was a few players who stood up for human rights, but largely the NBA did everything they could to sweep that under the carpet and to coddle the NBA because the billions of dollars that China offers them. But human rights didn't ultimately carry the day with the NBA in China when you're talking about millions of people being locked up 
over there, the, the Muslim Uyghurs. So now it's just it's a bad look for the NBA to constantly be forcing this message down your throat. And, and they're paying for it. People just want to watch sports. It's not to say that people don't support the movement, that don't want to see these these police shootings end. Of course we do. They're an awful, awful pattern that we're seeing in the United States, but people deserve an outlet. They deserve to sit down and watch some sports without constantly being reminded of how racist this country is. And, you know, I think it makes, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way as well. The NBA players making 30, $35 million a year to score 15 points a game talking about what a racist country we are. I think it's difficult for some right. people to embrace the fact that every billionaire, not millionaire, billionaire athlete is a black athlete in the United States, and not because of how they play, largely because they've been allowed to become corporations. The money they make off the court is larger than they make on it. So it's a hard message for these guys to be delivering when they're making tens of millions, and in some cases, hundreds of millions, and now we're seeing billionaire athletes. Yeah, that's such a great point. The level of hypocrisy there and just frustration for people who just want an escape. Now, before I let you go, I, I, I would yeah. be remiss being where I am, noting 29 to 9, the Braves versus the Marlins last night. That I missed the game, but you know, I just, I, I got to give one for the Braves. They always seem to disappoint me, and yet they didn't last night. They didn't. They will if you have World Series hopes. It's a very good <laughs> club on the rise. Good young players. Can they win a World Series with this club? Probably not. But I find, you know, I don't know what it is about baseball. It is largely absent the, the real mainstream discussion. And I don't know if it's the absence of fans, but I just don't find people talking about it watching it and maybe it is strictly the absence of fans i think they need to start introducing at least socially distant stadiums and by the way six nfl stadiums including tonight the chiefs will have fans there and i think that'll be a difference maker for the nfl i think those teams that are going to allow some fans are going to do better it's just a better product the major league baseball product isn't great right now but that's a great win by your brain outstanding <laughs> it'd be better if i could have some chick-fil-a and sit in the stadium though and watch them yeah totally i, I just I, I need to sit in a stand and have a beer and watch a game and and none of that is i actually have a buddy of mine he had a small group of people they were allowed into one of the rooms at the at the game last night to watch it no one in the stands but in you know they've got the fancy glass areas where you can go get drinks and stuff and they could stay up there and there were like two dozen people spread out watching the game and that was it and you would have never known they were there it just they need baseball needs people in the stadiums i always find baseball so much more fun to watch in the crowd as opposed to on tv yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't think that any sport will see the ratings return to where they were before until they have fans. Now, the NFL might be different if they're able to keep the protest somewhat quiet. I think people are so hungry for football action that I would expect there to be 30 million people watching tonight and a return to the 15, 16 million person average that they saw last season. But that's a big if. If they can make sure the protests aren't the story that the football carries the day. I'm hopeful, but I'm not certain. Well, I, I'm I'm going to be watching tonight. I'm, I'm smoking wings and 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 having a few beers and watching tonight. Dave, listen, thanks for stopping by. I appreciate it very much. 
Wings and beer, brother. Cheers. Enjoy it. Take care. Dave Briggs, uh, who was with uh, CNN for a while, was with uh, Weekend Fox and Friends, uh, taking a hiatus from TV right now to cover sports. Uh, the Texans and the Chiefs play tonight at 820 on NBC. I, I absolutely, you know, I, I like college football. I, I'm not a huge sports guy, but I love college football. And I'm ready to really get Georgia games and LSU games. But I'm watching this tonight. I'm watching. Man, Dave is so right. The pro t- I'm I'm exhausted by the. There's no escape from it. They they want you to care. You will be made to care. They want you to care. There's no respite from any of it. And I think people really want a break. They they're just tired of it. They they need they 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 need an outlet, and they're not getting it by forcing this stuff uh, into their TV screens and 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 rubbing their nose in it. And people are starting to resent it. I think. Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. Let's go to the phones. Bill calling from Eatonton. Welcome to the program, Bill. Uh, hey, Eric. Uh, I just tuned in and heard that fellow talking about uh, uh, kids not going to college. And my immediate reaction is uh, with this BLM crap and all the other stuff that's going on, why would anyone send their child to a college today? only to be indoctrinated in liberal politics uh, and how to be a good cog in the communist wheel. Uh, <laughs> I could say a lot of other stuff, uh, but it is. Yeah, yeah, I look, get I, I get you. Um, you know, honestly, it, it's funny you should say this, Bill, because I'm having more and more conversations with parents. So my my oldest just turned 15. Uh, we've, we've still got a few years, but the amount of concern that people have right now over their kids going to colleges, it's not just the cost, it's that they're not really learning valuable skills. In fact, uh, more and more data shows that your kid can go to a trade school and and learn a, a vocational occupation and make more money with less debt than a whole lot of um, people going into your regular traditional four-year bachelor degree college, which is surprising. And, you know, I mean, I I went to law school. I, I went to undergrad in the law school at Mercy University, the Walter F. George School of Law. They're too ashamed to say it these days. Uh, and um, I personally am still paying off student loans from law school, and I haven't practiced law since 2006, really. Uh, really, 2005, wrapped up my last case, 2006. Uh, and, and is it worth sending your kids these days to a college where you're going to be deeply indebted? They're going to be deeply indebted, and they're going for a bunch of liberal propaganda. Uh, I, I suspect what we're going to see is a number of colleges kind of rise from the rubble of the pandemic. Frankly, I think it would be a good thing if some American uh, colleges and universities went out of business over what's going on. That I mean, kids can't go to college now. Uh, they, there's a pandemic. They're trying their best. Uh, kids are going, they're being, well, they're being college kids. Here comes the virus and they're having to, to socially distance and learning. And I don't know that this is sustainable for a lot of schools. And I actually think it's probably a good thing. I, I think that we are oversaturated in colleges and universities in the United States right now, many of them, you're not getting the bang for the buck with it. You're getting an indoctrination instead of an education. 
Uh, you're getting a bunch of uh, you got a bunch of frivolous degrees. The whole um, victimization, victimology classes of of women studies, gender studies, uh, queer theory studies, um, African American studies, you name it. Uh, and, and you got a bunch of kids going into stuff like that. I, my favorite was years ago someone complaining they got a master's degree in puppetry arts and were upset they couldn't make ends meet. And I'm thinking, what are you thinking? Of course you're not gonna. You're not going to be making ends meet with a, a master's degree in puppetry arts and the student loan to come away with that. And, and listen, if you want to do something like that, go for it. But don't then insist on social policies that bail you out of your irresponsibility. I'm just I'm 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 not there with you. Um, yeah, it just it it's the whole thing is crazy to me. I don't have a lot of sympathy for American uh, universities these days, uh, given what they've been, what they've allowed to happen under the name of tenure, among other things. By the way, before we get out of here, uh, there's an interesting story uh, happening right now. Mark Galley, uh, he is the was the editor of Christianity Today. You'll remember he wrote the big editorial, basically saying uh, a pox on all of you for supporting Donald Trump. He's unworthy of support. And by the way, I'm retiring. He has retired from Christianity Today, the newspaper founded by Billy Graham, and now he's converting to Catholicism. That's right. He's convert having having uh, burned all the bridges with Christianity Today, uh, hurt them with their subscriber base, left the door and said, I'm Catholic now. <laughs> oh, you know, interestingly enough that I, I, I know I know a lot of evangelicals who have converted to Catholicism. And do you know what it is? liturgy the the going to church and being made to feel like you're in a sacred space as opposed to the the converted walmart with the band on stage uh there are a lot of people who like to feel the sacred and they don't feel it and i i I think this modern trend in evangelicalism where you go into the big box store with the band on stage and and the neon lights and the strobe lights and the disco balls and and the regular chairs and and you you got nothing uh there are a lot of people who get turned off by that they want a level of of liturgy i honest to goodness um protestant churches could do themselves a world of good if they got serious about ecclesiology um and too many of them are not uh there, there there's your there's your theology of the day all right listen we're going to be back here tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know. After this last bit, who knows? But when we do, I want to talk about the Sturgis rally. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the report. There's a lot on there. I didn't have time for today. I don't want to have to talk about Bob Woodward tomorrow. I think I've exhausted the topic in one day. I'm already tired of the story. I'm already tired of the election. At this point, I just want it done. I want it over. Um, I'm I'm just, this is this whole year needs to like be put on the ash heap of history. And let's move on to 2021. After my heart attack, cash from active care meant I had choices. When I had cancer, cash from active care meant I didn't need to stress so much about money. What is active care? Active care is a supplemental health insurance policy that offers protection for covered cancer, heart attack, or stroke, and a choice of cash benefit options from $10,000 to $60,000. If you're diagnosed with cancer, a heart attack, or stroke, you could end up paying thousands of dollars or more in out-of-pocket medical bills. Active care gives you protection at an affordable price. So get active care for cash, choice, and control. 
Active Care is brought to you by Colonial Penn Life Insurance Company and is underwritten by Washington National Insurance Company. Visit colonialpen.com for more information. This is a limited benefit policy. This policy has limitations and exclusions. For costs and complete details of coverage, visit colonialpen.com. New to Medicare? Start now. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about some of the top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. If you're thinking about a Medicare Advantage plan, MyHealthPolicy.com is a great place to go to find a plan that meets your needs. Learn more about your options. Even talk with a licensed insurance agent. MyHealthPolicy.com new to medicare go to myhealthpolicy.com with myhealthpolicy.com you can compare plans from some of the nation's top insurers start now to find a plan and apply online myhealthpolicy.com makes it easy to find a medicare advantage plan in your area including plans for zero dollars a month in plan premiums low out-of-pocket costs and expansive provider networks my decision my medicare myhealthpolicy.com 